You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. I love uh, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the boss, if you will. If you really think about it, you go, who's, who's in charge of the church? Is it, is it some sort of a, a pope or is it some sort of a, a priest? Is it some sort of a pastor? Is it some sort of a mega church guy? What, who is the head of the church? The head of the church is Jesus Christ. It was his idea. He's the one who founded it. He chose the original 12 who had launched the church. They were not the people you would have chosen if you were, if you were in a Kickstarter campaign to start your business. You would not choose these 12 guys. They would be the least likely guys that you would choose, but Jesus chose the least of these, that they would be the ones who then would go out and proclaim the good news about Jesus to all the world, and we love him. He is the boss. He is the head of the church. If you have your outline today, take that out. We're, we've been walking through the book of Corinth, uh, Colossians, and walking through this book, we've just watched Paul just describe to the early church the supremacy of Christ. And, and he's gotten very practical recently in chapter 3. He, he's talked to fathers. He's talked to husbands. He's talked to wives. He's talked to children. He's talked again to fathers. And now he's going to talk to employers and employees. And so he's the boss. He is the head of the church. And God is your undercover boss. If you've ever seen the show Undercover Boss, it's where a CEO of a corporation will change their look. They'll dress up as something, and they'll, they'll enter on just kind of the entry-level jobs of their corporation, and they will begin to work. Maybe they're installing blinds. Maybe they're working in the food industry. Maybe they're working in some part of the marketplace. But as they do, they just introduce themselves as somebody that they're not, and they work alongside several different people, and they film it the whole time. And then at the end, the boss reveals who he or she really is, right? And after, after they reveal who they really are, the, the employee is always taken back like, <gasps> because they think back instantly, right? They rewind. What did I say? Because whatever I said to what I thought was the entry-level person really was to the CEO of the corporation. Did, did I follow company policy or, or was I cutting corners? Did, did, I, did I represent like I should? And, and it's so amazing because you can just tell the ones who, what was on the inside came out their mouth, right? The tongue is a tattletale. It tells on the heart. And when all that stuff came out, you could see them all of a sudden you just watch like the color just drain, you know, right out of their head. Like they realize they're in front of the boss. Like I could get fired today. And, and then there's other ones who just, they're so humble. They're just like, oh my goodness, that was you. I had no idea. And then this boss goes on to reward those with maybe a trip or some money or a perk or more authority. They go on to really help that employee out, and it's so amazing to watch them. They almost always cry. I mean, I just get sucked right into this, this show. They almost always cry. They're, they're like so gracious, like, I can't believe that anyone would ever think of me or do this for me. I mean, they're just, they're just taking that. And the other ones who, are, who behave poorly on the job weren't a good employee they, they try to be real teachable in that moment. They try to be, you know, okay, and they're thinking they're very worried. But the response is different when the undercover boss reveals himself. And I want you to understand something. That beyond your work situation, beyond the authority that you have as a boss or that you have as an employee, that always with you is an undercover boss. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the institution of the church. But he's also the head of the institution of the marriage. 
He's also the head of the institution of the family. And Paul has dealt with the institution of marriage. He's dealt with the institution of the family. And now he walks to the institution of the workplace, and he's still saying, Christ is supreme. He's still the boss. And it's not all about you, but our world makes the workplace all about us. In the workplace, we have vaulting ambition. We want to undercut people above us. We want to insert ourselves when we know very little of the information. When we know very little of the process, we want to become favorites with ourselves and launch ourselves into the position of what you or I would have done if we were in those shoes. And other times, you might be those who employ employees. And then the issues of money or greed or power or control come into play, right? And there is an undercover boss who watches how you and I manage ourselves in the workplace. And that's where Paul begins to talk to the church at Colossae. And he has these words for us. If, if you have your Bible open to Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 22, uh, on your outline, you're going to realize when we look at what is God's type of employee, what kind of employee is God looking for? Not to serve only in the church, but to serve in any industry, what kind of employee is God looking for? And the first type of employee that he's looking for has to recognize that your boss is not your employer, it's the Lord. That God ultimately is your boss. Let me ask, when you lost your job last, who gave you a new job? The Lord, ultimately. He's a provider. When you, when you were praying, oh Lord, I lost my job, I need a job. What's out there, God? When you, when you begin to say, God, is there something out there where my gifts or my talents or my abilities, I feel like I'm outgrowing my positions or something else out there, who gave you that job? It's the Lord, right? When you lose your job, who allowed you to lose your job? The Lord. And typically, if a person loses their job, they say two things, right? It wasn't fair and it was unjust. I've rarely ever met a person who says, I deserve to lose my job, right? But when we peel back the information, when we dig a little deeper, we hear the cry of the person who lost their job, and we, we say, unfair, unjust, and then we look at other information, and we go, hmm. They always seem right until you start digging a little deeper, right? Isn't that the way it works? Even ourselves, you try to defend yourself, I, I never should have lost my job. But the Lord, who's your undercover boss, who sees everything, he might bring some other information to the table wouldn't he? There are times you and I did deserve to lose our jobs. There are times that you and I did deserve to be cut. That in the layoff, your name or my name was allowed by God, but he is a good provider. He might have something better in mind. And better may be better for you. It might not mean better pay. It might mean a better fit. It might mean a better situation, but God ultimately is your boss. And so Paul goes on and begins to tell the people, the church in Colossae, he says this in chapter 3, verse 22, slaves, okay, let me just stop right there, because if you are an employee, you are an indentured servant, right? You're paid for your work, and, and in his day, we're going to talk and look about slavery, we'll look at that in a few minutes, but I want you to hear, when you hear the word slaves, I want you to think employee. When you hear the word master, I want you to think employer, to think the boss, the manager, right? Okay. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart 
and reverence for the Lord. And whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are what? Right, so let's say that again. When you go to work, it is the Lord Christ you are? Right, so we are serving the Lord no matter what industry. And in our room, we've got people in here who are employers. We've got people in here who are employees. We've got people here who are looking for an entry-level job. We've got people in here who have climbed the corporate ladder. And maybe for some, you don't want to climb any higher. You've been there, done that, and you want to be in the right gift mix, the right fit for who God's created you to be. It's the Lord Christ you are serving Verse 25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. All right, let me pray for us. God, we pray that even now, as we begin to look at your word, we realize that these are not just a letter written to a church by a guy named Paul, but that these words are directly from your Holy Spirit as they worked into his heart and through his hand or the hand of a scribe were put down as Holy Scripture. So God, even right now, we acknowledge that these words are timeless, that these words are eternal, that they are spoken by you and they are the word of God. So speak now, God, to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to realize something. Slaves in Paul's day, picture this. Slaves were over half the population. They weren't a little segment. When you would go to church at the Church of Colossae, half or more of the church would be slaves. You might be an employer or a master. You might go to church and, and your slaves might go right there with you. And you may feel very awkward because in every other context, you are not equal. But you go to church and guess what? There is no favoritism. You're together and God's the boss. And now Paul begins to take the heart of God and, and begin to propagate that out. It says, does the Bible endorse slavery? Some people would ask. No. The fact that this passage deals with an existing institution doesn't signal approval. It just, he's just writing to the culture. It is what it is. So in that, how do we bring the heart of Christ to the culture? Notice that this passage actually treats slaves and masters as equals before God. And even, listen, addresses slaves first. What did he do? He talked to husbands, then wives. Then he goes on, listen, he switches it up. He talks to children first. Obey your parents and everything in the Lord, for this is right. And then he deals with parents, fathers, and mothers as we parent our children. And in the same way now, he doesn't address the masters, the ones who should be addressed first in that culture, but he goes first to the slaves. He elevates them suddenly into their behavior, their world. They're addressed first here. If they were listening to this letter being read in their church from the apostle Paul, they would sit up and take notice. He addresses slaves and masters as equals and addresses the slaves first. See, listen to me. The apostles brought the gospel first into whatever their culture was. The first thing they brought was the good news of Jesus. And they brought that first. They did not bring social reform first. But I'll tell you something, that they bring the gospel first. But the gospel is the hope because with the gospel plus social reform, 
The gospel brings about the equalization. It brings the heart of God. And over time, the gospel works social reform. If you just bring social reform without the gospel, it's going to last a very short amount of time. Why? Because of corruption, right? There's going to be corruption. There's going to be human nature. There's always going to want to be ones who want to lord masters over servants. Social reform without the gospel because of corruption can be very short-lived. But the apostles first brought the gospel into any situation. And over time, the gospel, because of the heart of God, brings about the downfall of oppression. And that's a beautiful thing. Paul was careful to instruct Christian slaves to actually secure their freedom if they could. Look with me at his writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? In other words, were you a slave when you, were, when you came to the Lord, when you gave your life to Christ, when you said yes to Jesus? Were you a slave? Let me ask, were you an employee when you were called? He says this, don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So what Paul would recognize the social inequality in the culture and through the mediums of the culture say, if it's possible for you to secure your freedom, to buy your way out in any way, shape, or form, do it. God is your undercover boss and he's my undercover boss. He's in every job you've ever had. He's at any level you've ever been at and he watches how you and I work and he watches what, I, what we do. Number two on your outline is this. Obey your employers in action and attitude. In action and attitude. Previously, he has just talked to kids and said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And instantly, he turns around and he says, Slaves, obey your masters in everything. The word obey is the same word. It's hupa kuete in this context. And it means to listen under, literally to listen under those in authority over you. And it's a present imperative, which means always be obedient. Be always obedient to your employer. Always obediently. And we talked last week about with our children, wouldn't it be great to train our children to obey fully and immediately, but also cheerfully and agreeably. In the same way, Paul hasn't changed his address. He, he has said, listen, as I just have spoken to children responding to the authority of their parents and the institution of the family, so now I'm talking to employees. And I'm saying, listen, employees, this is so countercultural. It's so counter-marketplace. It's so counter-everything you see in Hollywood. It's so counter-all the conversations around the water cooler, right, or the coffee pot. It's to obey your employers in attitude and action, fully and immediately, cheerfully, and agreeably. And he gives some illustrations to this. Paul says, listen, and not just when you're watched. What's that? Maybe that's you working, but when you know your employer's eye is on you, you're giving eye service. See, it's not just lip service in what you say, but you're just acting right, you're acting well, you're working hard when their eye is on you. That's giving eye service. And Paul is saying, listen, not just when. Your employer is watching you. But understand that God is always with you. But that you and I should work with a reverence toward God. And these are on your outline. As if you were working directly for the Lord. Why? Because you are. Listen to me. Are you retired? Guess who you're still working for? The Lord. His eye is on you. He's always with you. He's saying, how are you managing your time, your treasure, your talent? What are you doing in terms of my kingdom? How are you doing what's fair and just and right? 
and then to do it with a sincerity of heart. Not conjured up emotion, not uh, brown nosing, not like kissing up, but rather a sincerity of heart. Let me ask, what does God think about complaining in the workplace? What do you think about complaining among the people of Israel who were his chosen people in the wilderness? In the Old Testament, he killed a bunch of them for it. Wouldn't that be corrective in the workplace? Wouldn't we lose most of the workforce in America right away, wouldn't we? (laughs) What does God think about it, complaining in the workplace? What does God think about undermining the leaders above you? What does God think about cutting corners in the workplace or laziness in the workplace? What does God think about those same actions in the church? What does he think about those same actions in the family? That God has set up these institutions, the family. He set up the same institution in marriage. He set up the same institution in the workplace. He set up the same institution in the church. What does God think about those kind of actions in your church or your family or your marriage or your workplace? Well, Paul writes... In the book of Titus, chapter 2, he says these words. He kind of unpacks. What are you talking about here? How do I be a good employee? He kind of unpacks this for these same employees. He says this. Teach slaves to be subjects to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. It's a beautiful picture for a minute. He's saying, why do this? Why, why be, don't steal because it's wrong? Don't do this because it's wrong? No, he's saying, listen, when you show that you're fully trusted, it makes the teaching about you, no, the teaching about Christ attractive. And so often we give in, we lose the little battles that make Christ look unattractive to those in leadership above us. We're losing the little battles, and that's all the enemy wants to fight. He wants to fight the little battles um, among us in the workplace because if he does so, we might detract the attractiveness of coming to Christ. How many times have you known somebody who said, well, if that's what a Christian like, I don't want to be anything like that person. What happens when you can't control that? That's outside you. But what happens when you begin to obey your employer in such a way that the message of Christ becomes attractive to them. So let me give you some practical examples, and some of these are right here out of that passage in Titus. One is just this. Make your first reply yes or no problem. How many managers do we have in this room? You manage somebody. You oversee somebody. Okay. How many of you would like your employee's response first time to be yes or no problem? And then work through the logistical problems or or the chain of command or the other things. But instantly what happens as an employee, sometimes we think we see the challenge, we see what the problems are, and our first response is, but here's all the problems. You're not making your job a joy for your manager or your employer at all. It doesn't mean that your information isn't correct. But let your first answer be yes, but now let's work through the challenges. Let's work through the problems. Let's work through what, you know, feet would have to happen for that to become a reality. Then bring solutions to the logistical challenges. Instead of saying, no, and here's all the problems, why? And you gave no solutions, right? You just said, no, and here's all the problems. That doesn't make Christ even very attractive, let alone you as an employee. But if you and I learn to say, Yes or no problem. However, 
Let me give some additional information. It's like that rule of appeal. May I appeal? We'll bring some additional information. What additional information do you have? Well, there's a chain of command issue. There is a, a pipeline issue. There is a financial issue. There is a job description issue. There are these, but here's one way I think we might be able to work through those problems. How attractive would you be to your employer? Now you're a problem solver. You're a big picture thinker. You're one who has a willing heart and attitude, but you're also cognizant of what challenges would lie in front of you. Bring solutions to your employer, not just problems. Here's another one. Talking back is really spelled D-I-S-R-E-S-P-E-C-T. When your employer feels disrespected, they're going to respond back to you without love. But how often do we get caught in the trap of, well, I'm not going to give them respect unless they earn it. And yet Paul is saying, listen, because of the authority structure of what God has called you to do, because of the witness of Christ, you give respect to the position, even if that person's disrespectable. You still, as one who has a boss, as one who has a master, as one who has the supremacy of Christ over you, you give respect to that position, even if the person is not worthy of respect that you show honor and you respect. And let me tell you what, when you begin to show respect, even a dishonorable person will be warmed in their heart to respond back to you with love. And then he says, do not steal from them in the passage right there in Titus chapter two. He says, do not steal from an employer. Well, how do people steal from employers? Most people think it's like embezzling money, uh, but there's other ways that we steal. Maybe it's time, maybe it's a conflict of interest. Maybe for you, it's a personal use of office supplies. Maybe it's like petty theft that way. Uh, of course, there would be embezzling funds or assets. Uh, sometimes there are distractions. You say, Dave, well, what, what distractions are you talking about? Well, maybe for you, the distraction might be fantasy football. The distraction for you might be social media. It might be pornography. It might be a lot of texting people on, on company time, but you're doing all your personal texts on company time. Perhaps uh, some of the vehicles that I see parked around town uh, for long extended periods of time are actually now out on service calls. Maybe they're under distraction. Maybe lunch is over. But I don't know about you, but when I go and I see uh, you know, a company vehicle in a parking lot or in a public place day after day, hour after hour, it makes me wonder. Does it make you wonder? How do we steal from our employers instead of stealing. I love that he gives a solution. So instead of stealing, instead of talking back, instead of displeasing your employer, he says, instead, show that you can be fully trusted. Fully trusted. Listen, it does not matter what others around you commonly do. I think Jesus, as your undercover boss, would show up in your workplace and say, you say, but Jesus, look, everybody takes extra time. Everybody takes long lunches. Everybody does this. Everybody takes some little personal supplies on their own. Everybody steals time. Everybody's texting or making personal phone calls. Everybody's doing all these things. And, and you would say, look what everyone's doing. And, and the Lord would look at you and say, what does it matter what they do? But as for you, you must follow me. Right? He's your undercover boss. 
He's with you and I in the workplace. And what are we doing? He's saying, please show that you can be fully trusted because there's a parallel between the trustworthiness of you and the trustworthiness of the message for which you stand, which is him. It's a beautiful thing. Well, what happens when you and I move from all these bad behaviors, from all this disobedience, from all this being a bad employee, when God's looking for good employees, what what happens when you and I move and we lay those behaviors down and now we pick up, how do I work in such a way as being fully trusted? What's the benefit of that? The result of obeying this way in the workplace is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24. Paul says, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord, listen, as a reward. What a beautiful thing that is, right? The undercover boss is not ignorant of your work situation. You may not receive in that moment the reward that you like from your employer, but God's going to watch how you respond to your employer God's the same one who says, if you've been faithful with little, I'll make you faithful with much. God's the same God who just says, listen, when you've been fully trusted, you will receive an inheritance from the the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. But so often we begin to make excuses, right? Well, God, I would, but they are hard to work for. Well, God, I would, but they are just a bad employee. Well, God, I would treat them better. I would be fully, you know, but, but work is hard and I'm tired and things are not working out the way I want in my life or at home or in my extended family. And we begin to make excuses, don't we? We begin to put ourselves in the position of the boss. You've not been in all those meetings. You've not been in those discussions. You've not been in that, those situations. But what happens, we, we take ourselves, we begin to elevate ourselves. We begin to, really what elevating ourselves is, it's showing favoritism to us. So what happens? Listen, if your boss has handled things poorly, Paul is saying God will deal with it. He doesn't show favoritism. It doesn't matter if he's the boss or the employee or whatever. There's no favoritism. In, in this situation, in his culture, if it was a master treating and handling things poorly with a slave. He's saying to that slave, listen, God will deal with it. But what happens when the slave says, I want to take things in my own hands. I want to deal with it. What are they doing? They're really showing favoritism to themselves. God will deal with it. But what happened? As it is, people, oftentimes we insert ourselves as judges with only a fraction of the information And that distraction suddenly gets you off mission, right? It gets you off mission and on the path of being disobedient in the workplace. And maybe it's that your attitude has changed or your actions have changed. Or maybe you're getting into some of these bad behaviors that we see as an employee. And suddenly you were on mission. You were like serving. You wanted to make Christ attractive. But you began to insert yourself as a judge and show favoritism to yourself. And it gets you off mission. And God is calling you and I back to serving is unto the Lord, that he takes care of it, even when you've been treated unjustly. A number of years ago, I was working construction. I'm working at my home church, and and I had a manager who hated my guts because I was a Christian, and listen, we were building a church. I actually switched companies so I could build my home church. If I got to work construction all summer, 
might as well work for one that's going to be like building, you know, my church. And so I'm a framer and I'm doing all these things. And this guy treated me horribly. And one time this, I'm walking with this guy and he's got a barrel full of all this broken up stucco. And he gets, you know, he gets a little wiggy with the wheelbarrow and he dumps it into the wall of brand new sprayed fresh stucco and he scrapes the wheelbarrow <laughs> along the wall and dumps all the leftover stuff against it. Well, the employer comes around, the, the manager comes around the corner and he, see, he starts chewing me out. I mean, the other guy's still got a hand on the wheelbarrow, but he starts chewing me out. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. I've worked construction for a lot of summers and this is crazy. Why does this guy hate me? A number of years later, I went to back to my home church to visit. I now lived out of state, went back to my home church to visit. This guy comes up at one of the little uh, adult Sunday school classes and says, hey, Dave, do you remember me? And I'm like, yes. But it's one of those where the person's out of context. Like, I totally know who you are, but you know, your mind's reeling. Like, where do I know you from? And all of a sudden it dawns on me. He goes, it's me, Mark. I, you know, I was your boss here when, you, when we were building this building. And he goes, he goes, man, I'll bet you never thought I would come to Christ. I'm thinking, you're right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And he goes, man, I treated you horribly. He goes, but, you know what I mean? But he's just like, but I found Jesus, and man, my, my life's been changed in a lot of ways. And we're not always guaranteed that, right? But can you imagine how my responses back to him would certainly taint him one way or the other? Fortunately, God's good. That even if I responded poorly, God can still reach the heart of the hardened person, Right? That's not a guilt or a shame thing on us. It's rather saying God's greater than all that, thankfully. But the beautiful thing is how much more could our responses begin to help make Christ attractive? Instead of getting distracted, instead of getting off mission and beginning to pick up the actions of the disobedient. So I'm going to ask you a real tough question here, and I want you to take a few moments and write answers on your outline. So if you don't have your outline out at this point, I do want you to take it out, and I do want you to grab a pen out of the seat back in front of you. Here's what I want. The question's this. It's number four on your outline. How has the internal boss of disobedience been mastering you? How is the internal boss of disobedience mastering you? What happens? We trade out Christ being the boss, and we begin to obey and be mastered by disobedience. So let's evaluate. If the undercover boss has been watching you in the workplace, how might he suggest that the internal boss of disobedience has been mastering you? Just be honest here. This is for you. As you continue just to write in that section, we just want to see what does it look like to be God's type of employee. But Paul also talks to what does it look like to be God's type of employer, not just employee, right? He doesn't just deal with the slave. He deals with the master. He doesn't just deal with those who are indentured servanthood in our business or in our, in, in our workplace, but he deals with those who are in management. He deals with those who are bosses. And he he says uh, that he's got some instructions for the, the employers as well, the bosses as well in the room. Uh, and 
what's interesting is that the world in this day for sure, and in modern day, I believe I've seen it in India, they regard slaves as being without any rights whatsoever. You get no rights, that there are no rights for those who are in slavery. But how does God view them according to chapter 4, verse 1? Because this passage is one of those unique passages in Scripture that they never should have made a chapter break where they did. It doesn't even follow the logic, really, of the letter. Chapter breaks and verse breaks were all made way down the road from when the letter was originally written. And so this, this thought, this train of thought, this passage carries over into chapter 4, verse 1. And, and Paul says this, listen, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So what's he saying? Give them rights and give it to them in an equitable manner. See, we use the word fair, but that's, when you unpack the Greek word, it's a little bit different than our modern understanding of the word fair. The word equitable is, is more appropriate for this word in Greek to English. And so number five on your outline says provide bosses, provide for them what is right. And what is right means you're bringing justice. You're bringing justice. And listen to me. There are many ways that you and I can bring justice. I'll give you a couple First of all, give them wages to match their responsibility. Can I get an amen? Right? Give them wages to match their responsibility. Not only that, but give them the authority to carry out their tasks. Have you ever been asked in the workplace, you've got all the responsibility, but you've got none of the authority. Good luck in being successful in your role. It's not going to work out, right? Because you're like, I need the right keys. I need the right you know, infrastructure below me to be able to help get this job done. I need to hire more, but they're like, no, we want to give you more responsibility, but no more employees. Well, how's that ever going to work out for you, right? So we want, as bosses, listen, you got to step back and you got to say, am I giving them wages to match their responsibility? Am I giving them authority to carry out their tasks? And then there's a hard part of justice being an employer or an employee. And that is Part of justice is that when an employee starts to go sideways, when they, when they start to do any of these things that we have just talked about from the, being a poor employee, and when that becomes toxic to the, the rest of the team, there's a time that you as an employer, maybe the examples Paul's been giving, maybe it's stealing, maybe it's insubordination, uh, maybe as an employer you need to begin that HR process for the overall health of the team. How many times have you failed to see a manager or an employer start that process with somebody else and it affects the whole team? And you think, why don't they deal with this? It just happens all the time. Why won't they begin that corrective process? And if they don't respond to it, why don't they carry it out? But part of doing what is right is that sense of justice. And maybe today as an employer, God is just nudging you to stop ignoring to start dealing with what would be best for your team. Not only wages to match their responsibility and the authority to carry out their tasks, but to create a dynamic and effective team. Number six, bosses provide for them in an equitable manner. So not only are we supposed to do what's right, but, but how? What's our manner in doing what's right? So I want to say that we ought to give wages that match the responsibility irrespective of the gender or the social background. So what's he saying? Masters, provide for your slaves what is fair and equitable. 
Man, that's, that is countercultural in that day. Listen, masters, think about that. Provide for your slaves what is right and equitable. Do it in an equitable manner. Wow, that's, that's revolutionary in that day and age. B is don't be manipulated by a few, but be consistent. Some of you in this room, uh, as, a, as a manager, as a boss, you, you're being manipulated by somebody. Maybe they're the squeaky wheel. Maybe the person who always complains. Maybe the person who always says, oh, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And you're getting manipulated by that, and God may be calling you back today to be consistent. Don't be manipulated by just a few, but be consistent. And that doesn't mean fairness in the idea that we might understand fairness. I want you to understand this. I've written down on the letter C, it says this, sometimes you do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Some people in the room would say, well, that's not fair. Well, if we were a socialistic society, you're probably right. If everyone just gets the same cut, irrespective of authority, responsibility, and a, and a sociology, then, then we all just, we just share equally, and that, that would be probably correct. But when have we ever seen that truly work without corruption? But sometimes you and I do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. That's what we did in India for Bhatia. Do you remember Bhatia, the, the little gal who were like praying, God, please let us find her. And we found her. And we just said, you know what? We can't immediately step in and rescue every child and every family. And we will work in a long-term way to find out how to bring solution to this. But, but maybe today, God, you want to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And God said, you'll not only do that for one, but you'll end up doing it for five, for six. You've got five brothers and sisters. You'll do that for six. And God expanded what we can do, but we can do for one family what we wish we could do for every family. And let me tell you, it makes a difference to that one family, doesn't it? It makes a difference to that one girl, doesn't it? Fairness, like our culture likes to call it, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Your kids say, that's not fair. Well, good news. Fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. That's where it ended. Because sin entered the world, and along with it came corruption. But there are times that we see the generosity of God. If fair were fair, Jesus never would have come. It is so unfair that he came to give his life for you and for me. It is not fair that my shame, my sin, got transferred on him on that cross. It is not fair to him. But he is a generous God. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew chapter 20 of these workers who come and work all day long in a vineyard. And he starts out early in the morning and he hires people and he says, at the end of the day, I'll give you a denarius, which was a fair day's wage. And they agree to it and they go work out in the vineyard. And, and through, he, but he keeps hiring throughout the day and he keeps hiring all at you know, maybe nine in the morning and then at the noon and then he hires some people at three in the afternoon. At the end of the day, he comes, all the people come back to get paid for what they agreed to. And Jesus starts paying out the people who got hired at 3 o'clock the same amount that he's given the people who got hired at 6 a.m. And the people who have been working all day, they expected more, even though they agreed to that wage. And what do they do? They complain to the master. They, they complain to the owner of the vineyard. And they say, listen, this isn't fair. And they begin to grumble against the master. And this is what Jesus says. He says that the employer asked them this question. Listen to this question very carefully. Are you envious because I'm generous? How many times 
have you and I in the workplace become envious and backbiting and grumbling when the employer has somehow been generous to another? That's not fair. Fairness ended in the garden. But the truth is, is it really that it's not fair or have we somehow become envious because he is generous? Well, let me tell you, he is generous. See, our comparison often demands favoritism. We're saying, don't be fair to everybody else. Please be fair to me, right? Let me exalt myself to be favored in the workplace. But when we work as unto the Lord and when that job goes to somebody else, when that promotion goes to somebody else, when we work as unto the Lord, our response to those situations shows our submission and our perspective about who we really work for. Who is the undercover boss in you? Have you traded the undercover boss for the wicked master of disobedience? Oh, we don't want that. So number seven, we want to trade out the lure of greed. If you are an employer, trade out the lure of greed or control for generosity. Greed or control, trade those things down, lay those things down and said, pick up generosity. Provide for them is what the scriptures say. That as masters, as bosses, as employers, as managers, we are to provide for them. We are to supply them. So let me ask, are you managing people or are you managing God's resources? When you manage God's resources, you take God's resources and, and they flow through you to somebody else. That's the point of managing. Managing is I, I'm a good steward. I take what God has given me, I leverage it to somebody else. You're like a river. The water comes from the mountains. It runs through you, and it goes to nourish other things. But some of us in this room, we want to be a lake. You want the water to come from the mountains and come to you, and you want to be a big reservoir. And everybody looks and knows that greed has got a hold of you. Everybody looks and knows that, that this is just you're just controlling. So let me ask, what if Jesus did that? What if he said, I am God, and I could stay in the comfort of heaven and just have it all to myself, but instead he said, I want to be like the river. In fact, I want to be the river of my blood being poured out in an unfair, inequitable way to those who don't deserve it. Men and women in this room, are you an employee? Are you an employer? Don't misunderstand the generosity of God. Generosity always wins. And maybe you're an employer or a manager in this room and you're just realizing, I have got to pay a better wage. Maybe you're saying, I have got to treat my employees better. I have got to do some things in an equitable way. Some of you are just God has laid on your heart. You've got to do for one person what you wish you could do for everyone. And your handbook might outline some things and you might say, I understand that, but we've got to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone because it is right. It is just in this situation. And you've got to do what's correct. Generosity always wins. Yesterday in this room, we had a memorial service for a biker, 28 years old. He was killed riding a bike at high speed up the river road on a side of the road he wasn't familiar with, on a bike he wasn't used to. And he hit the bridge. He had a three-week-old baby at the time. It was about a month and a half ago. And so in here yesterday, in the seats where you're sitting that you think is your seat for a church person. There were bikers in here yesterday. There's some hell's angels in here yesterday. 
There were bikers in here all from all over the Bay Area. It was raining yesterday, and bikers come out of the woods. All these clubs came from all over the place. And down here was the family and the friends. Their name was the Havoc Riders. And yesterday, just sharing the good news of Jesus with them, we saw over 20 people accept Christ in here. And we did that memorial service for them for free. Listen, that memorial ministry that we do here, it exists for non-churched people. Some of you say, well, that's not fair. I'm a church member. I come to this church every weekend. Right, but guess what? We love you. But we can't, we can't use up that ministry, right, just for us church people. Let's do for one what we wish we could do for everyone because generosity always wins. And if any of those bikers are back here today, it's because they heard the generosity, they saw the love, which is not our love, but the love of Christ being transferred from him through us to them. Generosity always wins. And that's why we remember Christ at communion. And we're going to take that in just a moment. But before we get there, it may be incumbent upon me to tell you that some of you in this room, You've been managing your own life. You've been the boss of your own life, and you have not wanted to surrender to the master, to the king of kings, to the Lord of lords. And maybe today is the day that you finally say yes to the undercover boss because there comes a day when you and I will stand before him and we will give an account for how we have lived and how we've managed all that he's given to us. And maybe that first step for you is say, God, I'm going to give you my shame. I'm going to give you my guiltiness. I'm going to give you the unfairness, and I'm going to give that to you because I give you me, and in return, I'm going to receive that reward, the inheritance that will never perish, spoil of faith, eternal life, being saved through Christ. We bow your heads and close your eyes. If that's you today, then you pray a prayer right after me, right where you're seated. You just pray this, Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you as the undercover boss. I believe that it was not fair that my sin and my shame was put on you on that cross. I believe you died and were buried in the ground. I believe that you rose to new life, that you are God. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation on the inside. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, were you just in a bold way? Just put your hand up now. If today was the day that you prayed that prayer, you just raise your hand right where you're at. We've got some friends who'd like to give you some information based on that decision you made. But anywhere around the room, you might have come here for 20 years, but maybe today is that day for you. You just raise your hand and hold up long enough, they'll find you. God, we're so grateful. Thank you, God, for being a gracious boss to us. God, forgive us for the times we insert ourselves as judge and jury. We've not been a part of the meetings. Maybe we've heard just one side, God, and, and we believed it. But God, we're going to trust that you are good that you deal with all sides, that you know all things. And so, God, we're going, to treat, we're going to trust our employers. We're going to trust our church leaders. God, we're going to trust our husband or our wife. We're going to capture negative thoughts about any. God, we're going to trust you as you guide us to raise our children. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.